Thank you so much. Good morning. Memorial Day weekend, three-day weekend, obviously comings and goings. But what's most important is that we realize that this is an opportunity to honor those that have laid down their lives for our political freedom, our national freedom. On a Lord's Day, we're honoring the one who laid down his life for our eternal freedom, Jesus Christ. Typically on a Memorial Day weekend, what I've done since I began in the ministry is to pause in whatever series that I'm in and to look at a particular battle that's being described in the Bible. Uh, today I would love for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to First Samuel. And in First Samuel chapter 14, what you and I are going to find here is that there's a battle that will contrast two generations. King Saul versus his son Jonathan. We want to look very carefully at what we are learning from both individuals and how their life experiences in this particular battle relate to everyday living. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1 through verse 15 is what I'm going to read as we pause in our series on the Christ series uh, to take a look at this this morning. And here we read, One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Stana. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other in the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them show themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they are hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. 
Then Jonathan climbed up on his heads and feet, and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And his armor-bearer killed them after him. And after that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within as it were half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. It's a remarkable story. We have to understand what has taken place before this, as well as what will take place subsequent to this. So we're going to try to bookend this as we go to understand the, the, the uniqueness, the distinctiveness of this particular battle and then draw life lessons for everyday living, okay? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, as we're coming before you, we're coming before you as people who enter in this world sinful by nature. We've inherited the sin that took place in the fall of the Garden of Eden. The Bible itself has taught us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sinful acts are due to our sinful nature. But at the right time, in the right place, with the right person, second member of the Trinity, the one who ordained within the Trinity entered into this world to die in our place for our sins. And so on this weekend where people pause to commemorate the many that died for the sake of our national freedom. On this Lord's Day, simultaneously, we pause and we pay respect and offer reverence to the one who died for our eternal freedom, Jesus Christ. So Father, now in these minutes together, Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. We've come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something very powerful and moving about being in Arlington National Cemetery, particularly when it's Memorial Day weekend. Years ago, Pam and I were in Arlington National, and there were certain scenes that stood out to me. Obviously, one being the setting where John F. Kennedy is buried. But the scene that rivets my attention this very day was the, and is still, the changing of the God at the Tomb of the Unknowns. It's carefully choreographed. It's a moving tribute to those soldiers whose names and sacrifices are, quote, known only to God, unquote. In September of 2003, Hurricane Isabel was bearing down on Washington, D.C. 
And the gods were told that they could seek shelter during the worst of the storm. But you're not surprised, and I'm not surprised. The guards refused. They unselfishly stood their post, fulfilled their responsibilities, and honored their fallen comrades even in the face of a hurricane. And when I pause and I think about that scene described in what we've just depicted, we see some parallels into the way in which courage, as it is rooted in faith, gets worked itself out, even on a daily basis. Where people are going to face hardships and they are going to face difficulties, but the one who has put faith and trust in the one who died in our place for our eternal freedom that individual has a courage that's rooted in biblical conviction. And show me courage, and I will show you conviction. But show me spiritual courage, and I will show you spiritual conviction that is found in the Scriptures themselves. And that marks Jonathan. What I want to do with you is to draw three significant challenges that are found in verses 1, down through verse 23, that I think are going to stir your heart as it stirred my heart from this text to want to honor God in a way that pleases him. Three significant challenges. The first flows flows naturally out of verse 1 down through verse 5. We're going to phrase it like this, that you and I are called here challenged to trust that God will work, will work, even when spiritual apathy surrounds you, surrounds me. But let's see where we get that from. Begin to work through verses 1 through 5 with me. And right away you see that one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Don't underestimate the phrasing there. He's called Jonathan. He is called the son of Saul. The writer wants us to be able to see the relationship that the two have to one another. And furthermore, what I want you to notice is that one of the key characteristics of spiritual leadership is initiative. And I want you to notice who is and who is not taking initiative. Jonathan, the son of Saul, is taking initiative. Saul, the king of the Israelites, is not. Now, we work through this all the more so, and we begin to ask ourselves the question, and why? Which is a legitimate question whenever you are looking at various battle scenes, you see. Well, in the prior chapter, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul aggressively, when it came to both matters of time and matters of boundaries, superseded God's will, God's God's parameters for his life. And as a result, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, Saul was informed, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Evidently, Saul is not a man after God's own heart. Evidently, God is not in Saul's heart. 
There's a heart issue here. And I want you to notice the contrast between the heart of Jonathan and the heart of Saul as the story unfolds. Now one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Now bear in mind that the Philistines have just had a major victory over the forces of the Israelites, and Saul must be hurting. He's smarting. And the troops have been reduced in size and scope. And Saul is the commander-in-chief, you see. But he's not taking initiative now for a counterattack. Jonathan now is plotting strategy. So the initiative is flowing from Jonathan, not Saul. Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. And then a caveat here, and this is profound. But he did not tell his father. Now hold that thought as you work through the next verse. You've spotted Jonathan in verse 1. Now spot Saul in verse 2. Where is he? Saul was staying not on the inskirts. He's staying on the, in the outskirts of Gibeah. In the pomegranate cave. At Migron. How would you describe him at this point? Well, words that come to my mind include detached, disengaged, de-energized. Something of profound significance to him, the kingdom of Israel has been removed from his leadership and will be given to another. I oftentimes find that when people want to do something of significance, of high levels of significance, and find out it's not meant to be, we'll go through a period of time that might be described as a period of detachment, where they're de-energized, where they're dismayed, they are inactive. There is a detachment from what matters until God grips that heart once again. Have you ever been that way? Here is Jonathan, Saul's son, proactive, taking initiative. And here, on the other hand, is Saul, the father, the king of the land, and he's passive, disengaged, even somewhat disinterested. Hiding out in a pomegranate cave, on the outskirts of Gibeah. Even he's experienced loss, not only of his kingdom, it's going to be given to a man after God's own heart. He's experienced loss in the size of his troops because the people who were with him, we are told in verse 2, were about 600 men. Pause. The biography of 
Peter the Great tells us that after he had visited the nations of the West and returned to Russia, we are told by a historian, quote, some days he would simply sit, moody, and depressed. For long periods of time, and matters of state were allowed to slide. It was 1724 in Russia, and Peter the Great was within a year of his death, and unless Peter's motor would drive affairs, very little was done. Russia had come to a standstill. Now, here we have a situation where, likewise, we see a man by the name of Saul who has, in essence, come to a standstill. There is a spiritual inertia here because the things that mattered to him were taken from him, and the one who should matter most, who was still there guiding and directing, evidently was not central to his own heart and thought processes. But God was to Jonathan. Question. At this moment in your life, are you more like Saul? Or are you more like Jonathan? Now, you spotted Jonathan in verse 1, and you've spotted Saul in verse 2, but there's a third figure you've got to spot in, in verse 3. There's Ahijah, and you say, well, who is he and what's he all about? We'll keep reading. He's the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. Ichabod. The word Ichabod would appear as the idea of the glory of God has been removed in the minds of the Israelite people. That's what his name signified. He's the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, and Eli's sons and grandsons and future generations would not be part of the line of the priesthood. It was a disenfranchised line. Now we've got a disengaged leader in verse 2 and a disenfranchised line in verse 3. So politically and religiously now, it seems as though there's inertia that has set in, and there's only one, the younger one of them all, who seems to be taking initiative, one of the key components of spiritual leadership. Initiative, coupled with insight coupled with a sense of being informed and the ability to inspire. Now, in verse 4, it seems as though if that's not enough, where, where Jonathan is facing these relational challenges, where a seeping apathy would love to overtake Jonathan's soul, not only are there religious or rather personal challenges, relational challenges in 1 through 3, there are also geographical and topological challenges found in verses 4 and 5. Because within the passages, passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, look at what he's got to face physically. There was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose 
on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Geba. So now he's having to overcome not only relational inertia, he's also furthermore having now to overcome geographical challenges that will require something from within to overtake the challenges from without. Are you more like Saul or are you more like Jonathan? And when you find the relational coupled with the physical challenges of life, are you more prone to detach and despair? Or do you find yourself invigorated, one who will take initiative and remain involved? Here is one who is passive, and he recalls, perhaps Saul does, the days of vigorous involvement, but it seems like a distant spiritual memory. But here's Jonathan, who's living now in the present with an eye toward the future, and he is creating a memory. And he sees what can be when Saul simply is despairing over what can't be. And which is it for you? So now you've worked through verses 1 through 5. You've spotted the key players, haven't you? And you've spotted also the big challenges that are confronting this young man. And you're embracing the first of these challenges the writer is bringing our way. You and I are to trust that God will work, will work, even when spiritual apathy, the saws and the hyjas of this life surround us. But now, there's a verse 6 that follows verse 5. All the way down through verse 15. And your second challenge now emerges. And number two, trust that God will work even when numerical challenges await you. You might say, I'm at work and I'm the only believer. I want you to say, I'm at work and I'm the first believer. View yourself as positioned for impact. You might say as you're looking at the next school year, come August, I'm going to arrive and I'll be the only believer. No, you are the first believer. You are positioned for impact. You are to be a full-spectrum discipler for God's glory. Watch how Jonathan disciples his armor-bearer. In verse 6, Jonathan now said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Can you imagine now what this young man saying to himself? I've just seen King Saul lead us in battle. We've been overwhelmed. Our troops are diminished in scope and in size. Here is Jonathan And here's me, and now he wants to go over and take on the Philistines? What kind of challenges are you facing? And to what degree are you finding I might have to go it alone? Can you imagine this sense of courage that flows from conviction oozing into the soul of this armor bearer who's pondering the words 
and the tenacity of Jonathan here. Is there any wonder that Jonathan and David could relate so well? And then Jonathan, and it's italicized, puts it before us. It may be that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the covenantal God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, where do you get that kind of courage? Well, we said courage is rooted in conviction. Jonathan knows how to apply Scripture to life, even in the biggest challenges of life itself. And in the first five books of your Older Testament, that would have been at his disposal. I want you to ponder what he has just said that's on the screen italicized with what Moses delivered to the Israelites in Leviticus 26, verses 7 and 8, which you'll want to put right next to that passage. Because Moses said in Leviticus 26, verses 7 and 8, You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. And a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Now this seems disproportionate until you realize who sets the proportions when it comes to matters of sovereignty. It's God. So with that engineering, his thought processes... And with that guiding him and his whole approach towards how do I discern God's will, he does what you and I need to do. We take the principles and the promises of the Word of God and apply them practically to the challenges that we face day in, day out with the obstacles we are confronted with, knowing that there will be some that would just simply smother us in apathy. There are going to be some who are just so prone to disengage. And theirs is a spiritual passivity. When you long within your soul, and I know you do, for a sense of proactivity. And here's your Jonathan. So again, are you more like Saul? Or are you more like Jonathan? But Jonathan's got the scriptures to back him up in the decision-making he needs and the guidance that he longs for. And likewise to you and I, when we are facing the obstacles of life, we've got the scriptures, we've got the principles, we've got the promises. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. Twice now he utilizes that title for his God from saving by many or by few. And he will have known the historical precedent that is found when Gideon, where his troops were diminished in size, were diminished to the point where truly it would be God and not Gideon who gets the glory. When the Israelites would be able to be victorious over the Midianites. 
So now here's Jonathan, and he's got a combination of the historical as well as the scriptural to guide and direct, as should you and as should I, when we are wrestling with the guidance of God and the direction for our lives. But you're going to face a series of challenges to get where you need to be. The question is, how do you respond? Now, you're a full-spectrum disciple, and so... The full-spectrum people understand, furthermore, that they're inspired by the one who disciples. And now this young armor bearer is listening carefully as the words are flowing from Jonathan's lips. And in verse 7, his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you. Heart and soul. Now, this young man has probably got his calculator up, and he's figuring out the odds of victory versus defeat. And yet he's able to say, nonetheless, I'm with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan sees that God is greater than Philistines. Out of the Civil War, General George McClellan who would eventually run against Lincoln for president, was a general who was known for his timidity. Now, McClellan's Union forces outnumbered the Confederate forces three to one. Reading from a historian at this point, yet he was convinced he was outnumbered and refused to fight. Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War, said of McClellan, quote, If he, McClellan, had a million men, he'd swear the enemy had two millions. And then he would sit down in the mud and yell for three. That's not Jonathan. And now it's Jonathan and this full-spectrum discipled person, the armor bearer, who's aboard. Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with your heart and soul which paves the way, of course, to the relationship eventually between David and Jonathan. And so Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to the men. We'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. Verse 10. But if they say, come up to us, then we'll go up. But this isn't about Jonathan. This is about Jonathan's God. This is not about you and the challenges of life. This is about you in relationship to your God. For the Lord has given them into our hand. Now he's claiming the promise of Leviticus 26. Verses verses 6 and 7, 7 and 8. And as he moves forward, he's probably also thinking of the historical precedent of Gideon, whose troops were reduced in size and scope to the point where God alone would get the glory of the victory. So whether it be a Midianite with Gideon or a Philistine with Jonathan, Both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. Pause. Now, the Philistines 
came from the area known as the Isle of Crete in the Mediterranean. If you are reading in your Newer Testament, you get to the book of Titus. Titus was a pastor on the island of Crete. Furthermore, you'll notice that modern-day Palestine and the word Philistine have a very close relationship in the way they sound. It's meant to be. There's a similar root. You begin to see the Palestinian-Israeli clash of today, and frankly, the question becomes, and who truly is the Palestinian? The Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign for us. And so in verse 11, both of them showed themselves, not one of them, to the exclusion of the other. Both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they had hidden themselves, which is the case, if you read chapter 13, where so many went AWOL. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us. Pride oozing here. We'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord, he just keeps bringing his God back into the story. Do you? For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Contrast Jonathan's humility with the Philistines' pride. Jonathan's engaged. And he's trusting God to work this thing out. Do you do that with your life? You might be saying, but my life's just so hard and it just hasn't gone right so far. You trust that God will work even when there's spiritual apathy surrounding you with the saws and the ahijas in your relationships. You trust that God will work even when the numerical challenges seem to be awaiting you. Ever see the movie Patton? In a recent uh, Christianity Today article, Mark Galley wrote, At one point in the movie, Patton and General Omar Bradley, Omar Bradley tells General Patton that Patton may be given a crucial assignment leading the troops in the invasion of Europe. And though Patton had played a decisive role in the battle in Africa and in the invasion of Sicily, Patton at this time had been removed from the battles, being disciplined for a period of time, and anxious to re-engage. Patton's anxious to get back into the thick of the battle, and when he hears about this possible assignment, he can hardly contain himself. He's a passionate man. He's a man of action, a man who takes initiative while others stand around just simply deliberating their options. But then Bradley tells him this. You're going to have to wait. Because your fate lies in the hands of General Marshall, who will make this decision. Patton calms down. Marshall, he says. He's a good man. 
He's a fair man. I can trust him to work this out. Even movies illustrate truths. Go vertical. Trust that God will work whatever it is you're facing out. But be a Jonathan, not a Saul. Engage, don't disengage. Trust that God will work it out even when spiritual apathy of those that you hang with surround you and Trust that God will work even when the numerical challenges, maybe it's financial, await you, and you're working this through, and you're working this through, and then Jonathan speaks to your heart, doesn't he? Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, his armor-bearer after him, and here it comes. They fell before Jonathan, his armor-bearer killed them after him, and that first strike Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land, and there was... Mock it. There was panic in the camp. And in the field. And among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled. These are the ones who had just gotten done conquering the Israelites, and now there's panic in their camp. The earth quaked. Unbelief has just been confronted with Real faith. It became a very great panic. Ready for the third challenge. Thirdly, trust that God will work even when material resources limit you. In verse 16, the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. That's the Philistine multitude. Finally, finally now, finally Saul speaks. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count, see who's gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Imagine how that speaks to Saul's heart. In verse 18, Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. Now Moses had informed the Israelites of old that the ark of the covenant, the ark of God was to be at the forefront of leading people into battle. It's almost now as if Saul is revisiting God. And it takes his son to get him to do it. Now, in verse 19, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. He's continuously cutting the religious leaders off from what it is that they need to say to him. And then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow And there was very great confusion. Now, here's what's so interesting about your third challenge of when material resources limit you. 
For in 1 Samuel 13, verse 19, after that great Philistine victory over the Israelites, we are told there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. And the Philistines said, let the Israel, excuse me, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his, well, you see the rest of the story there. In other words, they were disarmed. How do you fight when you don't have resources? Verse 20 again. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. This is not Israelite versus Philistine. This is Philistine versus Philistine. How could this be? Well, his historical precedent, because this is what happened when Gideon, who had his own troops reduced numerically, saw a similar episode when God wanted to get the glory. And this is in keeping with what God himself had promised. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, and in chapter 7 and verse 23, that great man Moses, once again, informing the people, equipping the people what was to come, had said, But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Next time you see ISIS taking captive some professing believers, claim that verse. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 23. And let the Middle East be cast in confusion. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. There was great confusion. And now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, the ones that went to AWOL, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. Everybody loves a victory, you know. But you don't lose sight of God. You never do. And in verse 23, so fitting. So the Lord saved Israel that day. It doesn't say Jonathan did. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And there's Saul. Disengaged as he was then, disengaged when Goliath will emerge on the scene. And this time, somebody with renewed passion by the name of David, close to Jonathan, will step forward to do what needs to be done. Are you stepping forward to do what needs to be done? So you summarize. You pull it all together. And this is what appears. Trust God. And trust that God will work. Even when spiritual apathy might be surrounding you in the workplace, in the school place, among the people that you live with, verses 1 through 5. Even when numerical challenges await you, whether those numbers are people or those numbers are dollars and cents. And thirdly, even when material resources limit you, because what God did was he then used Philistine swords when there were no Israelite swords to be found, God cannot be hindered to accomplish God's purposes for God's glory. 
So you have an Arlington moment. And you're reflecting upon the changing of the good. But reflect upon the changeless one who continues to guide your life for his glory. Your risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Thank you, Father, for the life lessons from the battlefield. And on this Memorial Day weekend, thank you for the way in which your word speaks to our hearts and challenges us not to be detached, not to disengage, not to lead a defeated spiritual life, but rather take a Jonathan approach to initiative, to biblical insight, to scriptural inspiration, and minister even though we might be ministering alone. We minister knowing that our Lord is with us. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.